You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 111 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As promised, with this show we'll be starting in on the Battle of Shiloh. Well, we won't actually get to the battle with this episode, since if you know us, you know we like to set the stage for everything. So starting with this show, we'll begin to set the stage for the battle. Yeah, we're pretty big on background. That's why it took us 30 episodes just to get to Fort Sumter. Anyway, as for Shiloh, since the beginning of the Civil War, everyone knew that a big battle in the West was inevitable, even if they didn't know where or when. But no one probably would have guessed it would take place down in the far southwestern corner of Tennessee, along the western bank of the state's namesake river, at a place called Pittsburgh Landing which was a forgettable hog and cotton loading station where steamboats put in from time to time. The locals eked out a living in nearby fields they'd scratched out from the tangled thickets, and on Sundays they went to meetings at a rough little Methodist church named Shiloh Chapel. There on Sunday morning, April 6, 1862, the long-anticipated big battle in the Civil War's Western Theater finally kicked off. And over the course of that day and the following one, there was an appalling and concentrated carnage such as the American continent had never seen before. The grisly total of over 23,000 casualties at Shiloh was almost double the number of killed and wounded at First Manassas, Wilson's Creek, Fort Donelson, and Pea Ridge combined. That made Shiloh the first great and terrible meat grinder battle of the Civil War, and the sheer scale of the bloodshed there shocked Northerners and Southerners to their core. The Battle of Shiloh was fought over some of the worst imaginable terrain, at least for those on the attack. Thick, brushy oak and hardwood forests cut up with ridges, deep ravines, and miry swamps that made control of advancing battle lines problematical, if not impossible. To the east, the Tennessee River hemmed in this small, mean patch of ground, while Owl and Snake Creeks defined the western boundary. There were some small cleared areas, to be sure, open fields and a few orchards carved out by local farmers. It was on this ground that the soldiers of the two great armies would fight each other, and it's notable that the vast majority of those soldiers were completely green. Some had never fired their muskets. Some had not yet been taught how to load their muskets. Some even arrived at the battlefield with no muskets at all. But ready or not, in early April, they all converged on that spot in the far southwest corner of Tennessee, near the Mississippi border. 
down from Illinois, Ohio, and Iowa, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, northern men came south. Up from the south, they likewise came from Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, Georgia, Florida, and Arkansas. Of course, Tennessee was well represented, and from the border states of Kentucky and Missouri, men came to fight on both sides. There were over 100,000 in all, the soldiers who would converge on Shiloh and tear at one another for two days in almost unimaginable violence, and when it was over, almost one-fourth of them would be killed or wounded. In his book, Shiloh, 1862, Winston Groom explains that, quote, All battles are tragic. The larger the battle, the greater the tragedy. And Shiloh ranks high on the list of the largest Civil War engagements. In human suffering, it left many widows and orphans and mothers to weep. It almost on its own account changed the mindset of the military, the politicians, and the American people, north and south, regarding what they had unleashed in creating a civil war. End quote. One of those whose mindset was changed by the appalling violence and carnage of Shiloh was Ulysses S. Grant, who said that, quote, Up to the Battle of Shiloh, I, as well as thousands of other citizens, believed that the rebellion against the government would collapse suddenly and soon if a decisive victory could be gained over any of its armies. But Grant admitted that after the bloodletting at Shiloh, quote, I gave up all idea of saving the Union except by complete conquest. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavors, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture.
The campaign that led the Union and Confederate armies to Shiloh began two months before the battle and more than 100 miles downstream, that is north, from Pittsburgh Landing. That's because, as you guys will recall, it was in early February 1862 that Ulysses S. Grant led an offensive aimed at Fort Henry on the Tennessee River and nearby Fort Donelson on the Cumberland River. The capture of Forts Henry and Donelson by Grant broke the back of the Confederate defensive line in Kentucky and northern Tennessee. With the victorious Federal troops and gunboats poised on the Cumberland and Tennessee rivers, Confederate Commander Albert Sidney Johnston knew that he must quickly pull back the widely separated elements of his army lest they be cut off and destroyed in detail. He would have to abandon his northern outpost at Bowling Green, Kentucky, thereby yielding the crucial border state to the enemy. Even worse, Johnston knew that with the Yankees having won control of the Cumberland River, he must give up the city of Nashville, which was not only the Tennessee state capital, but also a vital Confederate transportation and supply center. Withdrawing from Kentucky and from most of Tennessee was a bitter pill to swallow, but after Grant's twin victories at Henry and Donelson, Albert Sidney Johnston saw no choice but to fall back, regroup, concentrate, and reinforce his scattered army, for only then could he give battle to the enemy with some chance of success. Some 15,000 rebel soldiers under Johnston's personal command withdrew from Bowling Green in southern Kentucky to Nashville, with Union General Don Carlos Buell's 50,000-man Army of the Tennessee in slow but relentless pursuit. The Confederates continued their retreat southeastward toward Murfreesboro, as Buell closed in on Nashville, its inhabitants were seized with panic, and hundreds followed in the wake of the bedraggled and dispirited rebel columns. Nashville fell to the Yankees on February 25th, and that same day, some 150 miles to the northwest, Confederate General Leonidas Polk began withdrawing his troops from their bastion on the Mississippi River at Columbus, Kentucky. Polk had been effectively blocking a federal advance down the Great River, but Grant's victories at Henry and Donelson had outflanked his position, and so as Polk's force fell back to the south across Tennessee, a vital stretch of the Mississippi was open to the enemy. Taking advantage of this new state of affairs, Union General John Pope led a 25,000-man army down the Mississippi to take on the next major rebel defensive position along the river, at New Madrid, Missouri, and Island Number 10. With those setbacks, criticism of Albert Sidney Johnston rose to a crescendo. Southern newspapers bitterly charged him with incompetence, drunkenness, and even treason. Tennessee congressmen petitioned Jefferson Davis for Johnston's removal, but the Confederate president stood by his old friend, saying, quote, If Sidney Johnston is not a general, we had better give up the war, for we have no general. For his part, Johnston refused to reply to his critics, but he was certainly stung by the attacks. He wrote privately that, quote, The test of merit in my profession is success. It is a hard rule, but I think it right. What the people want is a battle and a victory. But in the meantime, the retreat continued. Johnston's force abandoned Murfreesboro on February 28th and trudged south into Alabama, reaching the town of Decatur on March 15th. That meant that along with Kentucky, most of western and central Tennessee had now been given up to the Yankees. 
Johnston knew he had to somehow reverse the steadily deteriorating situation and bring about that battle and victory that he had mentioned. In moving toward that goal, he would have the help of PGT Beauregard. Beauregard, as you guys may recall, had started to feud with Jefferson Davis in the aftermath of the Confederate victory at First Manassas. Eventually, Davis had tired of quarreling with the vain Louisianan, and in early February, Beauregard had been sent west to assist Albert Sidney Johnston. After Grant's victories at Henry and Donelson, to all intents and purposes, split his vast department in two, Johnston had retained direct control of the troops in the eastern part of the department, while he sent Beauregard west to oversee operations in that part. Besides ordering Polk's withdrawal from Columbus and directing that defenses at Island No. 10 be strengthened, Beauregard also took on the task of marshalling reinforcements from Confederate garrisons throughout the Lower South. Their rendezvous point would be the strategic rail hub of Corinth, Mississippi, just south of the Tennessee border and some 25 miles west of the Alabama line. The retreating columns of Albert Sidney Johnston and Leonidas Polk would meet them there. The town of Corinth was selected as the concentration point for the Confederate reinforcements and for the retreating rebel columns because the rail junction there was on the last remaining major east-west rail line available to the Southerners, the Memphis and Charleston Railroad. With the setbacks to the north, the Memphis and Charleston became the most strategically important of the Confederacy's railroads. It now formed part of the South's only continuous east-west rail system. At Chattanooga, Tennessee, the Memphis and Charleston connected with the East Tennessee and Virginia Railroad, which provided rail connection all the way to Richmond. When Johnston and his men arrived at Corinth on March 24th, they found the other Confederate troops already waiting for them. Daniel Ruggles had brought up 5,000 men from New Orleans. Braxton Bragg brought 10,000 from Mobile and Pensacola down on the Gulf Coast. Polk's troops had arrived shortly before Johnston's column. And once assembled at Corinth, the concentrated strength of the Confederate Army of the Mississippi was about 40,000 men. The only significant contingent that was missing was Earl Van Dorn's force from over in Arkansas, which would not arrive at Corinth in time to fight with Johnston's army, as you guys already know from our coverage of the Battle of Pea Ridge. Also missing, of course, were those twelve or 13,000 Confederate soldiers who had been captured at Fort Donelson, and they, needless to say, would be sorely missed at the Battle of Shiloh. But at any rate, once the concentration at Corinth was for the most part complete, Albert Sidney Johnston knew that he couldn't afford to surrender the initiative to the enemy by simply waiting there and then presenting a passive defense when the Yankees arrived outside the town. And that the Federals were going to arrive at Corinth sooner or later, unless the Confederates stopped them, was clear by the time Johnston's column reached the rail junction, since by then it was apparent that at least two Union armies were converging on the town. One of those Federal armies heading for Corinth was the one that Ulysses S. Grant had led to victory at Forts Henry and Donelson. But following those triumphs, Grant had been experiencing his own share of trouble. Grant's troubles didn't originate with anything the Confederates had done since then, but rather stemmed from badly strained relations with his immediate superior, Henry Halleck. The smoke had hardly settled at Fort Donelson before the intensely ambitious Halleck 
had wired General-in-Chief George McClellan, saying, quote, Give me command in the West. I ask this for Forts Henry and Donelson. End quote. Now remember that prior to this, command of the Union war effort in the Western theater had been split between Henry Halleck and Don Carlos Buell, and now Halleck was claiming promotion to the top spot in the West based on Grant's twin victories at the river forts. And Halleck was duly given that reward, and so Buell became his subordinate, and Halleck was free to prosecute the Western war as he wished. Before this, Washington had been trying to push Buell into an invasion of eastern Tennessee, but now that Halleck commanded in the west, he could move Buell's troops wherever he wanted them, and he wanted them united with Grant's army, which was pursuing the Confederates down to Corinth. Halleck envisioned the combined federal armies, under his direction, converging on Corinth and there inflicting a decisive defeat on the rebels. Having gotten what he most wanted, the top federal command in the West, Halleck now aspired to reap even greater rewards by playing the starring role in smashing up the rebel army that was concentrating at Corinth. By the time Buell's force and Grant's had rendezvoused along the Tennessee River near Corinth, Halleck planned to have traveled from St. Louis and joined them in the field, where he would take personal command of the combined federal armies as they pushed on overland to the vital Confederate rail hub. In the meantime, though, Grant's victorious army was no longer being commanded by Ulysses S. Grant. You see, while Halleck's star had risen because of Grant's victories at Forts Henry and Donelson, Halleck actually had a pretty low opinion of Grant, and he was jealous of Grant's success in the field. And so after the twin victories against the rebel river forts, Halleck did his best to plant seeds of doubt about Grant's abilities, even going so far as to offer a not-so-subtle hint that Grant had resumed the heavy drinking which had marred the end of his career in the pre-war army. Grant's aggressive style of warfare unnerved the cautious and methodical Halleck, since it raised for Halleck the equally undesirable outcomes either of Grant blundering into a defeat or of his forging ahead to a further victory. Halleck feared that if Grant suffered a defeat, he, Halleck, would share the blame for it. But he equally feared another victory by Grant, since he was afraid any further success in the field by Grant would eclipse his, Halleck's, own rising star. So there's little doubt that Halleck was jealous that after Fort Donelson, his subordinate was being celebrated in northern newspapers as Unconditional Surrender Grant and acclaimed as the Union's newest hero. And so, for altogether self-serving reasons, Halleck was therefore especially eager to rein in Grant after Forts Henry and Donelson. In a telegram to Washington on March 3rd, he complained, quote, I have had no communication with General Grant for a week. He left his command without my authority and went to Nashville. It is hard to censure a successful general immediately after a victory, but I think he richly deserves it. Satisfied with his victory, he sits down and enjoys it without any regard to the future. I am worn out and tired with this neglect and inefficiency. C.F. Smith is almost the only officer equal to the emergency. End quote. This absurd outburst was apparently prompted by Grant's failure to reply, on several occasions, 
to request by Halleck for troop strengths and movements, and also probably to a snide remark from Buell that Grant had made an unauthorized trip up the Cumberland to Nashville. In his memoirs, though, Grant attributes the breakdown in communications to a telegraph operator who was a Confederate sympathizer. Grant wrote that the man, quote, proved afterwards to be a rebel. He deserted his post a short time later and went south, taking the dispatches with him, end quote. But, as if his first telegram to Washington weren't spiteful enough, Halleck followed it up a few days later with a postscript to McClellan, saying, quote, Word has just reached me that since the taking of Fort Donelson, General Grant has resumed his former bad habits, end quote. Although there was absolutely no basis for such slander, Halleck knew that McClellan would deduce that Grant was once again drinking heavily. And McClellan quickly fired back a reply to Halleck, saying, quote, Your dispatch of last evening received. The future success of our cause demands that proceedings such as Grant's should at once be checked. Generals must observe discipline as well as private soldiers. Do not hesitate to arrest him at once if the good of the service requires it, and place C.F. Smith in command. You are at liberty to regard this as a positive order if it will smooth your way. End quote. And so, under cover of McClellan's instructions, Halleck issued an order that relieved Grant of command and replaced him with C.F. Smith. Grant was told to stay at Fort Henry while Smith prepared the army for the big expedition up the Tennessee that would deal the rebels a severe blow at Corinth. Grant's reaction to his demotion, at first, was disbelief, then indignation. Not knowing of his jealous superior's treachery, he replied to Halleck in the tone of a hurt friend. He wrote Halleck, saying, quote, I am not aware of ever having disobeyed any orders from headquarters, certainly never intended such a thing. End quote. Grant asked to be relieved from further duties in the department, but Halleck didn't deign to reply. He was content to leave Grant virtually under arrest. But as Grant's staff and many of his subordinates rallied to his defense, Halleck soon found that he had bitten off more than he could chew in going to such lengths to undermine his perceived rival. For while McClellan may have gone along with Halleck's shenanigans, when word reached Abraham Lincoln that the victor of Forts Henry and Donelson had been sidelined, the old country lawyer that still resided deep in the president quickly determined that almost all of the accusations against Grant were based on rumor and hearsay, and Lincoln told Halleck, essentially, to either put up or shut up, that is, either bring Grant up on charges or else return him to duty. Quickly backpedaling, Halleck lamely explained that Grant had now satisfactorily accounted for everything. And as for Grant himself, on March 13th, he received a letter from Halleck saying, quote, You cannot be relieved from your command. There is no good reason for it. Instead of relieving you, I wish you, as soon as your new army is in the field, to assume command and lead it on to new victories, end quote. At the time, Grant was immensely grateful to Halleck and relieved to simply be put back in command. Grant didn't learn about Halleck's attempt to stab him in the back until after the war, but once Grant did find out about it, he was understandably furious and never forgave Halleck.
While Halleck had been holding Grant in limbo, he had ordered C.F. Smith to lead Grant's army up the Tennessee River to the vicinity of Savannah, a town on the river's east bank. There, Smith was to link up with a division of new troops from Paducah, Kentucky, led by William Tecumseh Sherman. Halleck wanted Smith to establish a base of operations there in southern Tennessee and launch a series of operations designed to cut the nearby line of the vital Memphis and Charleston Railroad. Meanwhile, Buell would be marching overland, bringing his army from Nashville to join Smith's force there on the banks of the Tennessee. Once this concentration of Union forces was complete, Halleck would arrive from St. Louis and personally lead his command the final 20 or so miles south to take the vital rail hub at Corinth and in the process defeat the rebels' main western army which was defending the place. As we've already said though, Albert Sidney Johnston hoped to prevent that outcome by seizing the initiative and going on the offensive. In his book, Shiloh, Confederate High Tide in the Heartland, Stephen E. Woodworth explains what the Confederate commander had in mind. Woodworth writes, quote, Specifically, what Johnston needed to do was carry out the classic military maneuver of defeating the enemy in detail. That is, he needed to fall on one of the enemy's separate armies, probably the closer of the two, and destroy it before turning and serving its companion force the same way. A simple task and concept, but very difficult to execute. Jefferson Davis alluded to the desirability of such a move in a March 26th wire as being almost too obvious to mention, and a few days later noted again, I hope you will be able to close with the enemy before his two columns unite. I anticipate victory. End quote. In other words, to put it plainly, what Johnston wanted to do was strike north from Corinth to the Tennessee River and smash the Federals currently assembling near Savannah before Buell's army finished its overland march and joined them. For the time being, the number of Confederate troops at Corinth was nearly equal to the Yankee force that was assembling nearby, but once Buell's men linked up with that force, the combined Federal army would outnumber Johnston's command by a two-to-one margin. And so, if Johnston was going to strike and have any real chance of success, he had to do it before Buell's force arrived on the scene. When Johnston set out to seize the initiative and defeat the enemy in detail, the result was the Battle of Shiloh. In April 1862, the bloody two-day battle along the Tennessee River, some 20 miles north of Corinth, was the Confederacy's first try and best chance to reverse the tide of war that in America's heartland had recently been going so badly for the new southern slaveholding republic, costing it thousands of troops and tens of thousands of square miles of territory. And for Albert Sidney Johnston, it was a bid to undo two months of military disasters that had occurred on his watch and that had been called into question his previous reputation as one of the South's greatest generals. And so that seems like a suitably dramatic spot to leave things for now. Next time, we'll pick back up with the story and continue setting the stage for the Great Battle of Shiloh. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Shiloh, 1862 by Winston Groom. 
Groom uh, is an author who has several Civil War history books to his credit, but some of you may be more familiar with one of his works of fiction that was made into a movie starring Tom Hanks. You see, Winston Groom wrote the novel Forrest Gump. And as you might guess from all of that, he's an excellent writer, and his book here on Shiloh is just a wonderfully pleasing narrative to read, and so we highly recommend it. As always, you can find Shiloh, 1862, by Winston Groom, and all of our other book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Uh, so you probably noticed that Tracy's voice was a little scary at the beginning of this episode, and then again right there. Um, that's because she was sick this past week, and her voice is still pretty rough. And while she actually feels a lot better than she sounds, um, she was a real trooper this weekend to at least try to record this episode and also the latest members episode. And speaking of the latest members episode, Tracy and I do want to thank the newest member of the Strawfoot Brigade, Jack L. And also a big thank you to Jerry G. from Oregon for his recent donation. So thanks, guys. And uh, with that, we'll thank all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Uh, we hope you'll join us again for the next show when hopefully both of us will be able to fully participate and when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Shiloh. Uh, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.